Hi guys, and welcome back to You're On Crackmate, the podcast where we delve into films, television series, and whatever takes our fancy, really, analysing and reviewing them to the point where we've been told flat out, you're on Crackmate. Today, I am very pleased to be welcoming back a very good friend of mine, who I am slowly working through the odd-numbered Star Trek films with, which I'm really excited about because, by God, they need a second chat. Most of them need a second chance. It is the wonderful James Amy. James, how are you getting on? And welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you doing? I am very good. I am very good. Now, for the benefit of the listeners out there who can't see, unfortunately, how wonderful we're looking, we have arrived in full costume for today's podcast. Um... Uh, Commander Amy, I, I, I think there, I'm, I'm, I'm counting those pips. Yes. Got, got all three. Got all Love three. It. Love it. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I missed a few uh, exams, so I'm only Ensign Ferrick today. Ah, uh, I see. You know, it's, it's horrible the way that Starfleet Command does that. You miss an exam and you go down a rank. I'm telling you. And, and I hate when my co-workers go up a rank, down a rank, side to side a rank, and I'm still stood at the back doing an ensign going, it's fine, it's fine. It's I'm, I'm here, guys, but, you know, it's fine. You, you go on. You, you go get your captaincies, and uh, I'll keep scrubbing the deuterium injectors. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Steve? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, how have, you, how have you been since the last time I was talking to you on one of these here podcasts? Oh, good. That was that was a lifetime ago. It feels like we recorded the last couple that we did back last last year, I think. So wow. this is the first paired podcast in 2021. So woo woo! Cheers <laughs> to that. Cheers to 2021. Cheers to 2021. Let's hope it's a bit better. Come on now. <laughs> like I want to say the words, it can hardly be worse. But I might have I just don't, doomed don't us do all. It. Don't do it. Uh, okay, so here, here, here's to a year. We shall say neither yes. positive nor negative. And yes. hopefully, here is to a year, three hundred and sixty-five calendar days. Hooray! Of which we are approaching halfway through as well, which is like yeah, which I'm pretty sure doesn't count anymore. Because of lockdowns and everything like that, I think that every government in the world should collectively agree that we go back to the date before the first lockdown, as soon as all the lockdowns are over. And we're just like, oh yeah, this is 2020, and we just forget it all happened. Collective amnesia, like a Star Trek episode. I'm, 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 I'm telling you, and as long as nobody leaves any clues around, I think we should be good. Yeah, perfect. So uh, yeah. For any commander datas out there, no noticing how many pips I have and sending it subconsciously through the internet or anything like that. We all want to forget. Yeah. Yeah. You hear that data? Don't be a dick. All right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as as long as this lockdown thing isn't a time loop, because I don't think people would handle that. Like, imagine if we all got to the end of all this COVID business and then you just wake up and you're back in January 2020 reading that headline, Wu uh, coronavirus variant found in Wuhan, China. I, I, mean, I mean, first of all, you, you shut your whore mouth. All right, that, that is not allowed <laughs> to be said. Uh, I saw one of the darkest jokes, but it was quite funny. I saw around, it was around Christmas of the year we won't mention. And it was like, mm. everyone's looking forward to the big New Year's moment, but nobody's expecting when the voice comes out and goes, round two. 
<laughs> Fight! <laughs> it's like, ah, no! Um, boss, boss, what we're going boss. to do is we're going to move far away from reality now for a while, and we're going to head off to the Briar Patch. Mm, I'm really looking forward to reviewing this late 90s film stop that starts with a trade dispute and then moves on to a planet where they find a young sandy-haired boy who has uh, special abilities and then it all really uh, concludes inside a massively impractical control centre for the uh, for something. I mean, holy crap, that is kind of the plot of this film nearly <laughs> i mean that's holy crap man i've not like swap swap out the trade for you know i oh, will just have your planet and that's well, effectively the... well if you think about it both films both the one we will not mention because we're discussing star trek and insurrection they start off with our heroes at some sort of going to resolve some sort of diplomatic event in the one we do not mention, they're going to solve the trade dispute. In this one, they're welcoming a new planet into the Federation. Things get complicated when they get roped into a big, uh, much bigger situation than they're originally intending for. One's a trade dispute, and arguably, this is also a trade dispute, just one that the Baku aren't aware that they're a part of. Yeah. So, and then it all evolves from there. And it checks out, and there's an annoying little sandy-haired kid in it. Yep. God. Oh, I'm on board. Okay, I like this. So, uh, yeah. So, of course, we're here to talk about Star Wars episode, um, Star Trek, the ninth film in the series that I feel, and I, I, I'm pretty sure, okay, so right up front, I don't think this deserves the hate it gets anywhere near the deserve the hate it this, gets. This film, for me, is the biggest, and its reception, and how it's received, and how it's perceived as well, is the biggest example of Star Trek fans have no idea what they actually want. Throughout all the TOS movies, Generations, First Contact, there was a not insignificant portion of the fandom who was saying, we hate all of this action stuff. Even now you'll get people being like, I hate action star Picard. Um, he was a big old diplomat in the series who was doing nice things. And, you know, while well, Insurrection also has action hero Picard, at the same time, the biggest criticism that's usually leveled at Insurrection is that it feels like a high-budget TNG two-parter, which is surely what you want from a movie based on TNG with all the TNG characters. You just want it to be a high-budget version of the series. That is... We are 100% on the same page there. I, I, have, a, I have a funny sort of story with how... So I was 11 when Insurrection came out of the cinema and I remember I went to see it on my own, loved it, absolutely loved it because it had the right balance of everything. It had what I wanted from a Star Trek film, which was, you know, lots of character. I wouldn't have called it character moments when I was 11, but it had lots of moments of the guys I liked on screen chatting. Mm -hmm. So, and then it also had, you know, some lovely bang, bang, boom, boom, not as much as First Contact did, but that's, fine, you kind of wanted a bit of a breather after First Contact. Then uh, I actually got, I think, so this was, this came out 99, I think, so... 98. I 98, think. okay. So, so very, very quickly, like the following year, when it came out on VHS, yes, 98. Uh, I wore out my copy, like every Friday <laughs> night. Um, 
So I've probably seen this movie. Oh, would be one of the movies I've seen the most. Mm. I think because um, I just enjoy it. You know, it's just a nice film. Yeah, it's like it's not a Oscar-winning big performance, but it's not trying to be. Like I think that there are very, very mixed expectations of Star Trek films. Some people want the Wrath of Khan and that level of quality and interaction every single time, but they don't appreciate that the Wrath of Khan only succeeded because there had pretty much been a 20-year gap, one film that didn't perform as well as they hoped, which meant that they took everything back to basics and pretty much rewrote how all the characters interacted to make that film work. And while the way that they rewrote them made sense, the Kirk that we have in The Wrath of Khan is not the Kirk we have in the motion picture. It's not the Kirk we have in the original series. And that's why it works. But if you do that for every single film in the franchise, you're going to end up with just nothing because they're just new characters with the same names every single time. Yeah, wildly inconsistent. And I mean, it is supposed to be, I mean, they are supposed to be sequels at the end of the day, mm. you know? Um, while, yes, okay, Insurrection is, it is technically a sequel to the motion picture in that they all are. We're obviously, we're following a different crew now. But, you know, if they, they did the story of, so, okay, so, right. So context for everyone, everyone who knows, everyone knows this, right? So first contact came out, we had uh, Picard re-meeting the Borg. It's one of the darkest Star Trek films. Uh, I think it was, it handled its, its balance very, very well. Going into this film, everyone behind the scenes said, let's do something lighter. You know, let's, you know, mm. we, we, we've, we've done the doom and gloom. So, so one of the criticisms up front was, they went too light. Now, what do you think of that as a criticism? It's a rubbish criticism. It's the same way that people say, well, Discovery or even Star Trek Picard are too dark. There is no such thing, you know, objectively in art as something being too light or too dark. It's just what your expectations are of that thing. Now, First Contact was, as you mentioned, very dark. It is Star Trek's space zombie horror movie. Um, and, you know, there is a bit of whiplash moving between this and Insurrection. So, you know, maybe they just needed a middle point film first. Or even, well, this wasn't a thing back then, but these days have a little mini series in between the films showing them kind of moving from moving past the trauma of first contact and kind of getting back into the day in and day out. But there are quite a few things that were planned for insurrection that were pretty dark that just didn't make it in in the end. That's, that's so there's one book that I have not yet got my hands on that I really want. And it's Michael Pillar's sort of making of Ooh, yeah. Insurrection. Yeah, and it was it was only it was a pot a po uh, I think apocryphally or something. The studio didn't want this book released. They didn't, you know, mm -hmm. they were like, oh uh -huh. no, 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 no. Nobody needs to know what goes on behind the curtain. And Michael Pillar, who obviously sadly passed away far too young, his widow kind of went, ha, cute, released it. Um, <laughs> and I haven't had a chance to look through it yet. I have seen, however, a still image of Quark 
on yes, the Baku planet. Scene planned. There is actually quite a bit of uh, DS9 integration planned. So uh, you will remember from the beginning of the film, shortly after Worf joins the Enterprise, he's uh, late for a duty shift because he oversleeps. Yes. The nightmare that he's having, uh, which causes him to oversleep, is to do with Jadzia's death. So yeah. that was originally planned and there was originally going to be, I believe, I don't know whether it's going to be either dialogue or an actual filmed scene or even archive footage from Tears of the Prophets. But um, that was originally intended to be Wolf waking up from a nightmare around his wife's death. It's that's pretty dark. It is, that's, that's, yeah, like, and that, I, I, I'm thinking because chronologically this, this comes season seven of DS9, um, mm. and it is odd that no one says, oh, Worf, I'm sorry to hear about your wife. Right? Uh, just, just even a mention, because I, 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 I've seen several times, um, now I might be mistakenly attributing this to Rick Berman, but there was, there was conscious decisions not to put too many references to yes. ongoing Trek series because, you know, the casual viewer might get lost. My argument is, this is Star Trek Nine. Mm -hmm. The viewer is watching the series at this point. You yeah. know, um, so... Yeah. Like, because... Yeah, because I always thought it was as, quite funny. If you think about it, like, all right, yes, Worf gives a line of dialogue to explain why he's on the Enterprise. There's no reason for Worf to be on the Enterprise. How did he get there? Was there no shuttle that arrived? Was there no itinerary? Like, there's no way the crew wouldn't know that Worf was going to be the Enterprise. So this is the film just going like, lads, we all know Worf is going to be here. Let's just get yeah. to it. Yeah. <laughs> the... Um, similar to the Marvel uh, thing where they had to recast Terrence Howard... I'm here. It's me. Let's just move on with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the funniest versions of recast is actually all the way back to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when Aunt Viv was recast and uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff, the first episode of the new season just goes, something different about you, Aunt Viv, but I can't put my finger on it. And of course, the actresses look <laughs> nothing alike. Yeah, you know? of course, of course. Um, I'm I'm all for hanging a lampshade on these things, but yeah, but now the completionist in me will be like, yeah, g give me all the DS9, put it put it all in mm -hmm. there. Um, at this point, yeah, at this point, Voyager's still in the Delta Quadrant, right? Yeah, Voyager's still far, far away. If Deep Space Nine's on season seven, then Voyager is on season four. I want to say. I th actually, uh, only because, okay, only because I used to collect the videos, six and four. So it's seven and five. Mm. So Tom Paris might have been sitting in the holding cell while this was all happening. Maybe. Yeah, because I'm just trying to think about the chronological order. And I've always had it that Voyager started. Voyager season one was running alongside Deep Space Nine season four. But maybe I'm wrong on that. That's just Where what I remember. Gotcha. We're uh, you wouldn't be far in friends. You wouldn't be far off us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, who who else? We actually we have there's two other maybe there's more. There's two other DS9 actors in this, but they're not playing. Mm. One is cut, and neither of them are playing their DS9 roles. One is Rom. Uh, mm -hmm. He was just yeah. chilling out in the Enterprise's library. Um, yep. 
and the other is the female changeling is one of the Sona officers. Oh, oh, mm. really? Yeah. Ah, I have uh, noticed that one. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Salome <laughs> Jens. Um, she is. Uh, <laughs> I I see by the look of confidence on your face that we both feel about as confident <laughs> as each other with my pronunciation of that. Um, and then we have one. Yeah, one Voyager guest star, Rick Worthy, plays one of the. Mm. I think it's the tar. The tarlac are the ones who look like triceratops. I think so. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, I know. He, I I believe Rick Worthy did a bunch of bit parts on various Trek shows. Yeah. I want to say that he was Noah Lessing from the Equinox in Voyager. One hundred percent. Yep. One hundred percent. Give yourself a gold star. Um. So, in a way, this, and I suppose arguably now Nemesis as well, have mm. the, the most amalgamation of a lot of yes. Trek at the same time. Um, but, uh, but what do you think of the story? So at the end of the day, the story, story is king. So what do you think of the story of Insurrection? I think that it's a story that's going to get more and more relevant over the next few decades especially. There's a big thing at the moment, um, well, not at the moment, but big thing on the cards, which is climate change. And if climate change continues and goes as badly as many scientists are predicting, we're looking at the equator essentially being uninhabitable. If that's the case, people who live along the equator are going to migrate north and south, which means that we may be, see a situation where people are paying um, or otherwise forcing their way into other people's homes and, and general like areas and villages and things like that. So this story, which is Starfleet and the Sona have decided kind of, yeah, we're going to keep it on the down low, but there's a lot of lives that can be saved by this random planet inhabited by a few hundred people. We just need to pop them out and then we can take all this free stuff. I think that's going to be very, very relevant in times to come. Um, but the story overall, uh, I think it starts off really, really well. I think that it kind of loses what it wants to be in the middle and then it comes back for the action climax, which doesn't really fit with the tone at the beginning of the movie. So tonally, the movie's a bit up and down and all over the place, especially with the whole uh, gore element of the skin stretching yeah. business. Um, which again, for a film that is trying to be a light alternative to First Contact, doesn't quite fit the vibe. It feels like there are a lot of ideas about what insurrection could be and everyone got to put in like one or two bits while the overarching story was going on. That's actually a really good description. It's almost like a film made by committee. Mm. That's a really good description because I, I, I think there's a strong argument for that um, because you have a lot of the, the lighter silliness you have. Yeah, like, it is quite horrific. Um, particularly, obviously, the, the skin-stretching scenes. Um, and Ruafu, who I will speak a lot about because I really like F. Murray Abraham in this film, has mm. quite a, okay, death scene. Um, 
you know, and yeah, it's a it's it, it's a bit like you, you would be forgiven for having a little bit of whiplash watching this film, I think. Um, yeah, because it does go from things like, um, I'm not sure if these scenes exactly follow each other, but in my mind, they pretty much do. You know, you have a light, light-hearted banter scene with Riker and Troy and their whole relationship angle, which kind of comes out of nowhere in this film. But at the same time, you know, it's what people have been wanting for a while. But also, can we just, before I finish the point, what arseholes? Riker and Troy, Worf's just lost his wife and they're acting like teenage giddy kids around him constantly. Completely. Anyway. (laughs) You're you're dead right. Like, how's everyone today? Everyone feeling good? Yeah. Anyway, I'm off to have a bit of bath time fun. Worf, man the bridge. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Can I look at pictures of my dead wife? (laughs) You may not. And in fact, we will criticize you for being late for a shift as well. Everyone is out to get you with this film. Um, um, but yeah, finishing the point, you have like these lighthearted scenes and then it'll go to Picard, Admiral... Dirty. Admiral Dirty, Dirty, and Ruafo in the ready room. And Ruafo shouts and his skin thing like splits and just starts bleeding down his face. And it's just like, whoa, whoa now, what the hell? And people say Star Trek Picard is gory. That doesn't have people shouting and their foreheads splitting open. Come on. I love that scene so much. I, it, it, there's Because it was so long ago, there's not an awful lot I remember about seeing it for the first time. Like I remember the bits in the nebula because it obviously just stands out a bit more. I remember the, the little tag drones, uh, things like that. I do remember that. That has stuck with me since 1998 until today. And it's so well done because it's actually, if you think about it, it's really understated and yet it just really works. This guy's demented. Mm-hmm. Like, um, he's walking around anyway with an open wound. Like, put a stitch in that, will you? Um, he was a dermal regenerator. Come on, this is the 24th century. Just run that blue light over it and be sorted. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You know, the Sona have the technology, Federation can't replace it. All right, cool. How about we do a trade? I will give you dermal regenerators and you give us some of this old uh, technology here and we'll be fine, we'll call it quits, it's cool. Um, um, you've just solved it. That's, I mean, I mean, on that, there are certainly ways that this plot could have been circumvented several different ways. Like, for example, approaching the Baku could have been done. Now, granted, they didn't know that they were an advanced civilization. Okay, fair enough. So, Which makes it even worse. Oh, completely and utterly. Yeah, Jesus, that sounded like I was about to be like, so good, let's forcibly remove them. Um, it was like the entire idea of the duck blind in a way, like, and this goes back to who watched the watchers as well. I mean, it's pretty bad. I mean, yeah. dress it up whichever way you like. Oh, we're observing. Okay, spying. Yeah, but we're just trying to learn spy. Grant, but we're uh, uh, we're spying. Okay, we're just spying on these people. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, did these people not realize that they got an entire new level of rock on their local cliff? <laughs> yes, I thought this when I saw Data shoot the uh, hollow projectors down. I was like, 
hang on, this is literally over their village. It's not like it's a few mountains back where somebody could have like avoided it or something. But boom, that's, pretty, and, that's like pretty whoa, bad. Hold on, that's correct. That cliff was shorter. I like to imagine there was like a whole gaslighting thing that Starfleet did, where they're just like, where they just like sent plants in and they're just like no no that, that's always been like that what are you on about it's just like you can imagine anish and artem um uh well, i can't remember artem's dad's name now uh artem senior are just standing there and they're they're looking at this cliff face and they're like hang on and then you have admiral darity full uniform there's nothing wrong go about your day and they just beams away <laughs> i like to think that they're even more subtle they've just got a uh They've just got a comm badge like hidden in a paving stone near the viewing <laughs> spot. And whenever somebody's like, did that used to be, uh, that used to be a bit short? You just had Admiral Doherty over the comm putting on a voice being like, no, it definitely wasn't. It's always <laughs> been like that. I've always loved the way the sun hits that large outcropping up there. Quaff, quaff, quaff. Aren't we all young? Um, but... Uh, and 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 the hollow shit. Okay, so I let's put a bit of structure on this. I'm going to address. I think we need to address some of the more glaring plot issues first, because otherwise they'll keep cropping up and spoiling our enjoyment a little bit. Yeah. So, did they mention the hollow ship to the Romulans at all? Yeah. No. I, and I this don't... is, you know, this is during the Dominion War. So we know the treaty is still in effect because there was the whole issue where the Defiant 2 couldn't get a new cloaking device because it wasn't uh, agreed with the Romulans. So, mm -hmm. yeah, Starfleet is full on just doing Pegasus 2 electric boogaloo. Uh, first of all, I've renamed the film <laughs> Star Trek in <laughs> Star Trek Nine Insurrection. Dot dot Star Trek Pegasus Two uh, Electric Boogaloo. That is now the official title of the film. Um, but I mean, but it always there was no. I mean, the Duck Blind obviously is issue number one, but technically there's precedent for that with Who Watches the Watchers. Um, the Hollow Ship. It's a bit harder to make that argument. Um. You could perhaps argue that maybe the sonar, like they said it was a Starfleet vessel, but it doesn't look like anything Starfleet we've seen before. So maybe it's some sort of sonar Starfleet collaboration and they had a cloaking device that they either made or stole and they just were like, eh, let's just uh, sneak this in here and as long as we don't take it out the briar patch, it'll be fine. But, but look, potentially, because... If you think about it, even the hollow grid inside looks nothing like any Starfleet hollow grid we've seen before. So that could track now, in fairness. Um, yeah. Because I'm thinking the, the, the main ones we see, obviously, are TNG, the yellow boxes, and um, Voyagers. Um, which it's almost a scaffolding-type wall on the edge, which I really mm. like. Whereas this is, it's, it's like, it's a flatter, it's like a kind of a brown and grey... Um, you know, just cavern, obviously. And it's just it's just visually quite different to what we've seen before. And there's issues with that as well. But I was I remember giggling. And this might be an invented memory, but I think I remember at the time watching it. And when Data says the, Fed, the ship is clearly Federation in origin, I was just like, is it? Is it? <laughs> yeah, I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> but 
to be fair to them, I've just looked up a picture of the hologram. Um, oh, hang on. Stupid background. There you go. And you can see it does have the yellow uh, oh, things it does. on the floor. No, it does. You're right. And it's, it does seem to oddly have the Deep Space Nine style hollow suite stuff on the ceiling, which is odd. And then the Voyager scaffolding on the walls. So maybe they just got all of their holodeck sets and were like, okay, mix. <laughs> Chuck them all in together. It's all good. Yeah, fair actually, funny enough, me, who I say I know track, I completely forgot about the hollow suites. I had, yeah, Voyager holodecks. Because actually, oh, to defend myself technically, because holosuites are Cardassian technology. They are indeed. They are indeed. Um, but, uh, so, right, we're both agreed, like, the, the ship, like, it is not clearly Federation in origin. That's cool. All right, I'm glad that we're on board with that. Um, I honestly thought it was Borg. It looks like a, lo a lot like the Borg probe that oh, you see at the beginning of Dark Frontier in Voyager in terms of its shape. In fact, it looks like they literally just took out all the green lights and stuck a few blue and red ones on and were like, Federation. It wouldn't, it. it wouldn't be the only time they've done that. I actually, quite recently, I discovered this. In an episode of Enterprise, there's an alien race called the Maserites, and there's three vessels shown on screen, and there is no denying the fact that all they are is the top wing of a warbird painted brown. That's, that's what they are. And it was actually, I, I went and checked and there's an interview with Doug Drexler and he was like, oh no, no, that's, that's what they are. Herman Zimmerman walked in and said, he threw us a piece of an AMT kit and said, do what you can with that. So we were actually told to create a new ship from, so it was like, it's one thing if it's a reuse, for example, I know the Romulan science vessel was flipped around, painted brown and used for the favorite sun or mm. uh, ships in Voyager. And I was like, yeah, right, like, that's just what it is, you know, it's grand. Whereas this is like, no, I actually went to the trouble of doing I digress. However, what I will say is Herman Zimmerman was the production designer on Star Trek Insurrection as well. There you so, go. The man has created an awful lot of beautiful sets. The man has been known to borrow. <laughs> in fact, everyone in this era of Star Trek has uh, been known to pretty much borrow and scavenge whatever they can. Which is very strange, considering it was a fairly high-budget production for the time. It was, I think, because First Contact did quite well. So in the law of cinema, if your movie does well, technically your next movie may or may not get a higher budget, but, you know, it most certainly will be greenlit, which is why, mm. unfortunately, Nemesis didn't do well at the box office, which is why there was the gap and, and the reboot. Um, so, for example, going back even, the motion picture did like for the time phenomenally well at the box office but it cost so much money to make they they slashed the budget for wrath of khan and looking at the two you're kind of like what but but wrath of khan looks weird because they they did the right thing with the money in insurrection it's the first time that it's entirely cgi in space and i must say mm -hmm. there are scenes when i'm like oh fair play I have to say, I, I didn't, like, some, yes, you can pick up straight away that they're CGI, but some look excellent. Mm -hmm. Also, fun fact, the reason that they're all CGI and that they used a different production company, tying back to my joking reference at the beginning, is because ILM, at the time, were working on The Phantom Menace. Yeah, and look, even I will say, if there's a Star Wars movie in production, 
That's ILM's baby. That's that they they will be mm-hmm. doing that one first. And yes, you could have delayed Insurrection by a year, but I think Insurrection. I think for the time, it probably looked about as good as they were going to get it. Um, yeah, like even watching it back now, the effects majoritively hold up. The only thing that really stands out is that a lot of the colourful parts of the starships are very muted, I find. You know, like the Bussard collectors, like the blue glow, like the deflector. You know, the deflector in um, First Contact and Nemesis is this bright yellow colour, which is re- like almost like a cat eye or a snake eye. Mm. And in Insurrection, it's kind of this muted, pale, whitey, beigey thing. I I I agree. I agree. And do you know what I didn't notice? It's probably totally obvious to everyone now, but I didn't notice at the time that this Enterprise E is different from First Context Enterprise E. The nacelles are slightly more swept back, um, potentially slightly longer, because now I, w- I will say, shout out to, hopefully one day they'll sponsor me, shout out to Eagle Moss. Their models of the Enterprise E are based on insurrections. CGI model, mm. not First Contacts. Um, Interesting. So yeah, because First Contact was a physical model. Yes. Um, and looked slutty. I mean, like, they, they all look fantastic, but yeah. But, and potentially this is sacrilege. There are some shots of E in Insurrection that were never topped in First Contact or Nemesis. And I've always defended using real models over CGI, always, always. But some shots in the briar patch where they do, where a long shot now, not where some of the flybys mm. are, but are just like, oh, I like that. I, I, the I would one like where that to play. the Enterprise enters the briar patch is one that particularly stands out, where it's got the whole um, sun shafts mm-hmm. ahead of the ship. It kind of moves through them. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. stuff. But I will argue a bit with you and say that Nemesis has the best Enterprise CGI or best Enterprise E shots by a country mile. It does look fantastic in Nemesis. It really does. And they they do and Nemesis I think does scale very very well um, and that obviously mm. the Battle of the Bison Rift is uh, it, it, it's fantastic. And do you know what it is actually? This is a funny thing where less is more because I know, and I realize we're talking about insurrection, but I know in Nemesis they were talking about doing, there was going to be much more ships there and it was going to be a bigger battle and eventually uh, budget went against them. And I think it works the way that it is. I, I think it's another example of where they planned to do a bit of tying with the TV shows and ultimately decided against it as well because the ships that were going to be meeting them for the battle you know i believe you can zoom in on the astrometric stuff and you can see like the defiant was going to be there voyager was going to be there you're going to have the uss archer because enterprise was running at this time um as a little bit of a throwback to that but yeah budget and i think it worked i i I think it worked i think the battle in Nemesis, because CGI, even in the few years CGI had come along another little bit again, they were able to do slightly more. The battle in the Nebula, which I do think is is nice, it's very stop-start. And I notice it more every 
every time I watch it now, it's very like, huh? mm-hmm. oh, okay, we're stopping. You know, yeah. oh, okay, we're stopping. Um, it's it's very naval that way. It's kind of the ships all fire everything they've got at each other. Then they need to stop. They need to reload. They need to resupply. Then they stop firing again. Yeah. Um, I love. There's actually there's that myself and a few friends. Uh, we've adopted, um, and we're all out of warp cores now, as nearly our <laughs> way of going. I'm I'm tired or I'm run down or something because. That I think that was in the trailer, and I think that absolutely blew my little eleven-year-old mind. <laughs> um, because I was like, "Oh, oh, this is it. This is the end of the Enterprise." Because I, I have no concept of the fact that they're not destroying the hero ship. Don't watch the Changing Face of Evil. Um, and to be fair, they didn't destroy the Defiant. They damaged the Defiant really heavily, cut away, then took it in, changed the carpet, removed the cloaking device and sent it back again. I, I have no evidence that that is not what happened. So there we go. That's perfect. Yep. Stunning. <laughs> um, how many Sona are there? Some. I, I, I agree with that estimation because there surely can't be that many because I think, they, I think he says... Um, there's about a hundred broke away. And mm. how many are on that ship that explodes? And then there's the other one that gets crippled. And I mean... Yeah, well, they, they said they did uh, in the research scene in the library. They were like, yeah, the Sona have been around for X, Y, Z time. But they've enslaved a bunch of other species. So it seems like the way that they made up for their lack of numbers was to just enslave others. We have these two races called Cannon and Fodder. Um, <laughs> um, okay, right. So before before we move on, are there any more kind of glaring? Let's talk about the mm, in the room before we move into kind of in depth. Not in terms of Star Trek continuity, aside from data not sinking like a log, but we can retcon that as him installing something over the years yeah that's that that's cool that's fine like that's here data's a flotation device of course he is that's yeah, yep. that, that's grand uh inspector gadget um mm-hmm. the middle you you mentioned the middle and i want to both defend and criticize the middle of this film <laughs> um, the middle of this film is why people say it's a long episode of the next generation. It's because you get plenty of sitting around and talking. And while it's interspersed with, um, you know, transport inhibitors and kidnapping people, you still get plenty of sitting around and talking, mm-hmm. um, which I do like. I do. But the pacing is just like off. Story, which is odd because... Jonathan Frakes directed this. Jonathan Frakes directed First Contact, and he na- he absolutely smashed the pacing in First Contact. Um, and it does it, it it does suffer in this film. Now I will say, mm. yeah, it's very interesting because in First Contact and in Insurrection, I think they slightly suffer from the same sort of thing, which is that there's a space plot and there's a planet plot going on at the same time. But the planet plot is more boring. We want to know what's going on on the ship. You know, in First Contact's case, this, the planet's 
plot is let's get the phoenix up and running and into space whereas the space plot is oh my god zombies invading the enterprise what are we going to do because having all this ptsd stuff and everyone shouting at him also a bunch of civilians from the 21st century escaped and now they're running wild on the ship which is also crawling with borg so i'm just know. like stop me there fuck the phoenix <laughs> sorry like or sorry yeah. to quote um, to, to slightly censor uh, happy to quote Stephen Pochran, to hell with the phoenix show me the zombies the phoenix yeah, yeah show me the bog zombies yeah. uh but yeah in an insurrection it's a very similar thing you have this cool space conflict going on with Riker and the Enterprise which kudos to Frakes if I was in the position where I could give myself captaincy of the Enterprise for half of a feature film, I definitely would do it. Uh, but I felt that, I think that part of the issue is that the character balances off. You have a majority of the cast on the planet and they're interacting on the planet, which means that whenever we cut back to the ship, it's, it has to be very hectic because they have to, con to keep the audience's attention. They have to be going like, oh, there's a battle on. Riker, I have my manual steering column, which I'm very surprised hasn't made it into the Star Trek vernacular as like the innuendo of all innuendos. Like, come on. <laughs> of course, when I come back to my place joystick. and play with the manual steering column, <laughs> come on. <laughs> oh, um, like. You can you can borrow that at the next convention you attend. I uh, thank you. I shall. I'll just walk around with my own joysticks. Would you like to have a go on my manual uh, steering console uh, and be immediately I mean, kicked you... out of the convention? <laughs> if you want to go for accuracy, you want the Gravis Thunderbird PC joystick. That first of all, fair play, fair play. I remember somewhere along the way going like, "Yes, this was commercially available." I was like, "Well, I assume it was." I mean, yeah. Like, it's that Star Trek's entire thing. You have like a few random props that were built for the motion picture that get recycled for decades, and then everything else is store bought. It's like the people that were complaining that in Star Trek Picard they used a modern day 3D printer as a replicator, and it's just like, yeah, but replicators inspired 3D printers, and the ones on the previous shows were literally a painted box. <laughs> but I mean, yes, like I think that the 3D printer looks much more realistic. <laughs> I'm on board. It's actually it's one thing I've not I've not invested in one yet. I'm, I can't like the fact that replicators now exist, mm. and I haven't bought one yet. I'll I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, but okay, I I want I, I want to start gushing about this film. Yes, let's because, start gushing. First of all, it's beautiful. I I. Kudos to Jonathan Frakes straight away. Um, uh, notwithstanding what I said about the pacing, I think this film looks fantastic. Yes, 100% agree. All of the location shooting they did, which was around eight weeks off the top of my head, um, really, really paid off. There are so many nice scenic shots. And I think that had Insurrection come out after things such as Lord of the Rings, which kind of popularized the big sweeping landscape shots that mm. there are a few of in Insurrection, it might have been a bit better remembered. I think, no, I think there's a strong argument for that. Um, particularly, I think the first one that pops to my head straight away is the lake scene, but also mm. a lot of that walking through the mountains. Stunning, like, yeah, no worries. Yeah. I, I, I laugh, I am, I am criminally unfit. And I'd be like, 
lads, let them tag me. All right, look, good luck. Um, <laughs> I, I'll let you know how I get on, hopefully. Um, I mean, it's literally just a intense hike and you can quite literally tag out when you're done. I'm bringing you on as an official writer for this podcast going forward. You, <laughs> like the quips, the quips this morning are fantastic. Um, it does suffer in a way that Geordie and Dr. Crusher get very little to do, but what they do, I like. There's not enough of it. I, mm, I mm. think that Geordie's storyline especially really, really hit me this time. I think perhaps because I'm a little older than the last time I watched it and, you know, I wake up, I have a few more aches and pains every now and then. Um, can't, you know, jump out of bed the way I used to. But the whole scene where he's, I believe, with Picard and he's got his regenerated eyesight and he's just like, I've never seen a sun sunrise the way that everyone else has seen sunrise and he just has a tear in his eye. And that is like peak TNG, a really beautiful scene and a really lovely commentary on like disability as well. The further commentary on disability where he's like, this planet has given me my eyesight back, but I'm still gonna all for saving these people and keeping them on the planet because I know that that's wrong, even though I know that it will force me back to implants potentially. Yep, I, it's funny, it's a scene that it hits, it hits hard because of, well, because we had followed this character all through TNG, through Generations, and then into First Contact where, there's some discussion of his implants, but not not especially. It, it's not really required for the plot. Um, mm. Whereas this, you know, there's just this one or two just mentioned, oh, the implants are bothering him. And it's, I think it, it, this could be behind the scenes info. I think they always bought that. That is one of the, the trade-offs of these new implants is that they're always uncomfortable, not painful. The visor, I believe, was always in some form a little bit painful for him. Um, yeah. I think there's a couple of references throughout TNG to that. Yeah. But he just looks so at peace during that sunrise scene. And mm. it's just like, oh, right in the heart. That's, that's a real acting masterclass scene. Less is more from LeVar Burton. Yeah. Because he doesn't say much. He doesn't do much. It's not a dynamic scene. There's not swooping cameras or anything like that. Freaks just lets the camera sit on LeVar Burton while he's got the reflection of the sunrise on his face and while he's talking about it. And it's just beautiful. Yeah, 100%. Um, Dr. Crusher, she gets, a, she gets a little bit of, I suppose, action shots. She gets to fire a few phaser rifles. And I feel, and I think this is, I think, do we discuss this during Nemesis? I think Dr. Crusher, out of the entire main cast, probably got the shortest straw in the four films. And unfortunately, that carries over to this one. She probably gets the most to do in this one, I will say. Yes. I think as well, because a part of action hero Picard was giving him the new relationships. I think that had Patrick Stewart and Picard consequently not been the lead of the show, 
they may have chosen to explore the Picard-Crusher relationships in the films, much the way they did with Riker Troy. And this, in fact, Picard-Crusher would have been a much more logical choice for that reigniting of a long-suppressed relationship. But Picard needed to have the love interest for the story to kind of work, unless they swapped over Picard onto the ship and Riker on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do we think of Anish? Ah, seems perfectly lovely. <laughs> if, if I had the offer that Picard had at the end of the film to go and chill with her and... Um, yeah, 318 nice days of short leave. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. On the Fountain of Youth. I, yep, 100%. I'll take yeah. that. Thanks very much. Um, Donna Murphy is very... I, I really like her calm, measured performance in this film. I think she's really, really mm. good. Um, but I, I think it's I'm, the exact same thing as yourself. It's like all good things left us with at the heavy suggestion that Picard and Crusher were going to happen. Um, mm. And then Generations, Crusher is in it. Uh, first Contact, she gets <laughs> a little bit more to do. Insurrection, okay, we're going to give Picard a love story. Great, let's hire an entirely new actor. Uh, hold on, hang on, what, what about the one we've set up? <gasps> You're yeah. fired. Um, <laughs> Not to mention Riker and Troy, we left all good things with Troy and Worf being kind of teased at. Then obviously he went over to Deep Space Nine, but there could have been a really lovely arc in this one with pairing up Troy and Worf and Troy helping Worf through his trauma by leaning on their previous relationship. Like there's, there's several references, obviously now it's played for comedy, but you know, Worf starts going through Jack to La again because mm. of the radiation from the rings and the aggressive tendencies start to come out. Now, I think that would have been a perfect example for him to start expressing some of the rage that we see in Image in the Sand and Shadows and Symbols. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's obviously got all of this anger, this pain inside him. You know, who better to go and single-handedly take on half of the Tarlac and the Allura and then who better to notice than Troy? And be like, hang on, what's, what's going on here? You know? Um, yeah. And it, I, I feel it could have been, without putting too much of a, you need to watch DS9, even though we're all watching DS9, it could have been done, you know, I am going through something and just, just enough that while they're on the planet together, so Riker is away, you know, he's off, blowing up ships with Metreon gas, Mm. are you okay hand on hand that's you know something simple like that maybe yeah i think that yeah the producers at the time just really didn't appreciate a their audience in general and b the intelligence of the audience like i hate to bring it up again you know but it's a very valid example Marvel films, um, they pepper their films with references to in and out. But if, say for, ex say, for example, let's take Infinity War. Thor turns up at the beginning of Infinity War with an eye patch, with a new hairstyle. The only reference to that from characters that haven't seen him in a while is when he sees those characters and they're like, 
I see you've changed your hair. And they're like, cool, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've been through all this trauma and stuff, but they could have done similar stuff to that, just throw away lines every now and then. You don't even need to be specific, just being like, Worf, I heard about your loss on Deep Space Nine. Just want to say I'm here for you. No general audience member would be like, how dare they? How could you do that? You kept it vague enough that you're not saying, Jadzia is dead, everyone. Don't bother watching Deep Space Nine if you haven't caught up with season six. But you're also acknowledging that it has happened in universe. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And there is obviously DS9 itself gets name dropped. But when Picard and, and crew are walking through the corridors at the beginning of the film, um, he says, we are, you know, Starfleet corps are busy with Dominion negotiations which is obviously, there's no other reference to the Dominion in the film. Well, mm. pardon me, there's a reference to Ketracel White, but that's, you know, otherwise, like there's no context for it. So if, what I'm, what I'm trying to say badly is that the writers obviously went, well, yeah, some people are going to be watching DS9. If you can name drop the yeah. Dominion and particularly Ketracel White, which is like, oh, great. Okay, so that is the drug that the founders have specifically engineered the Jem'Hadar to be addicted to, which I know because I watched the S9. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, otherwise that's just an absolutely meaningless reference. But that's the exact sort of perfect reference that you do want and we could have done with more of. Yeah. Um, you know, I, because I'm not, I'm not exactly sure chronologically, like I don't know if Esri was around yes at this point so i'm trying to you know was there was there no 10 seconds in the film where i'm very sorry about your loss um do you know how how is dax uh, i do not want to speak about okay no problem mm. you know um now listen this is in a perfect world where you know we were like you know they reached out to us during the writing of the film um and uh, one, one day that'll happen one day that'll happen that's that's why this podcast is here yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex Kurtzman, uh, who is now in charge, gives gives a shout. Gives a shout. We'll get we'll we'll absolutely I bring mean, our expertise on. I think our brand of Trek knowledge and expertise more tailored towards Mike McCann. Let's get on lower decks. Let's write an episode or two. I think we could do a very good job. I I I I like where this is going. I like where this is going. This is yeah. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, if you're listening reach out on twitter we can uh, we can sort something out excellent mike you are clearly listening <laughs> so like come on now it's fine <laughs> it's fine you, you don't die um favorite moments of the film uh i have always always loved the entire structure of the running away from the substates rift scene yeah. and i just love it just shows the development of the characters and everything when Rack is just like, eject the core. And Jordy's like, I just did. Like he says that statement so smugly, like I knew he was gonna say that. I've already done it. I'm the boss chief engineer. You can all, you know, run away. I got this covered. Loved it. I love that entire bit. Um, I also love the whole data pursuit scene at the beginning, Worf and Picard chasing him uh, in the shuttle and the, and the uh, scout or venture class as it was called in Star Trek Armada. Um, but yeah, I love that entire interaction as well. It's a huge amount of fun and it's 
a really great example of the sort of thing that only Star Trek can get away with. Docking clamps to another ship, then you sing while sing singing Gilbert and Sullivan to distract them so they don't notice what you're doing. Um, and then the whole excellent pratfall from Brent Spiner when Worf appears at the back and he dives for and he just goes flat on the floor. Excellent. Um, I I really enjoy that scene. I that that gets a little bit of critique, and I'm just like, no, like that th that is exactly something these characters and War Michael Dorn's comedy timing in that mm. scene is so, and he's just just the casual, just the the insistent shake of the head. Sing Worf, sing no, no, um, and. Look, I'm I'm well aware of the uh, power of auto tune, but the three lads, I think they belt yeah. it. Yeah, they do. They do. I love the fact that this is another example of Star Trek reusing stuff because Picard and Worf were on the runabout set, and Data yeah. was on the Type Nine shuttle set, which is just hilarious. I love it, and that's something that. As fans, and as you mentioned before, like some sets were built for TMP that just go all the way through the films. I enjoy that. Uh, mm. like, sick Bay. Sick Bay is just like, yeah. they didn't even change the backing panels. They were just like, Voyager? Yeah, we're on Voyager. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, <laughs> which it was I especially love. funny because they did change the backing panels for First Contact, but were clearly like, this is way too much effort this time around. Like nobody shouted us out for all of this nice change that we did. Let's just leave it how it is and see if anyone notices. And yep. no one did. <laughs> if it ain't broke. Um, is there... So, I have an undisclosed amount of money in a briefcase. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you this briefcase on the provisor that you can remake one scene from this film. Um, what scene, why, and what would you do with it? Uh, final confrontation with Ruafo on The Collector. Uh, why? Because the scene just looks low budget. Like, I'm not sure whether it was... I think there's a pop culture rumour that they ran out of budget and that's why they have the blue screen background. Um, but whether that's accurate or whether that was intentional, I don't know. Either way, at the time, they could get away with it because green and blue screens weren't commonly known, really. Like, you didn't have these days where everybody with a podcast, a stream, a YouTube channel has a green screen or a blue screen for their streaming. Um, but yeah, it looks very cheap now. And so I would like to go through that scene again, uh, perhaps make it so you have Worf instead of Picard doing the final confrontation. Again, feeding back to what you said earlier about giving him a bit more of an arc and giving him an opportunity to show the rage that we saw in Image of the Sand. Um, perhaps Picard is doing the controls while Worf is holding Ruafo off or something like that. Mm. Um, and not have the swoop through by the Enterprise at the end. I love the CGI shot. I love the structure of it. But I think that the whole last minute countdown thing didn't quite land right. So I would have wanted to just tinker with it a bit more. I think so. I know that there was a sequence shot where uh, Ruafo would basically revert to F. Murray Abraham. Um, that you know, the casket, which I, I love the idea of it. I've only seen stills of it, so obviously it would need. Um, 
all of the work gone into it. But I do love the idea of it. Now, I don't know whether the thought process was to have him realize his mistake by the end or have him just, this is all I wanted, um, mm. which I don't think it is. I think he's gone full kind of crazy man at this point. But <laughs> it's because, because I'm, I'm not satisfied with how they take out Ruafo in this film. Um, I think it's a little bit generic. Um, yes, and, exactly. Yeah, like it. It, it was also. Of, uh, sorry, I was. I was going to say. Like, no, but what, 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 what were you going to say there? It was also pretty much a shot-for-shot shot repeat of the bald queen death in First Contact. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Big scream. Big like ah. Big cloud of something rising. They die. Um, so yeah, I I think that they should have mixed up how they deal with Ruatho. Maybe have him caught. Maybe have um, someone else just fire the fa- fire a phaser at him, and then his and as he's being beamed out by the automated systems on the collector, and then it's kind of like, did he survive? Didn't he? And then we cut, and then we like go down to the Baku planet, and F. Murray Abraham like walks in and just rejoins the village or something. But yeah, I don't know how it would have worked, but what was on screen didn't land quite right for me. And I think that that's probably where a lot of people's negative vibes towards insurrection come from the fact that the conclusion of the film doesn't quite hit the sweet spot. I think so. And. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned generally the I, I really do like I love the design of the sonar ships. I will say that. Um, unfortunately, the CGI for the wings on the collector, uh, it's it has it, it wasn't great at the time, and it hasn't aged well. Um, no. It would be my biggest criticism, I think, of all of the CGI elements of the film. I think the wings of the collector would be the 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 big issue. Just, I mean, and I say this with respect because Jesus, I'm not saying I could do better, but it does look a bit MS Painty. Yeah, yeah, it really does. <laughs> um, but uh, so I thought potentially if I rob that briefcase of money back off you there, I might put it into the the wings of the collector. I think you're dead right when it comes to the blue screen because I've seen uh, fan edits on YouTube where they've just put space in over those and look, this is Star Trek, it's force fields, you know, it's fine. Um, yeah. And I think it looks really, really well. And, and it kind of, not that I want this film to be darker, but it just, the actual physical look of that scene, then it, it adds a, a slight darkness to it, which reflects what's going on. At the end of the day, this is two men who are out to kill each other, really. Because Picard yeah. may be focusing on the self-destruct, but the self-destruct ends with exactly one outcome, which is the destructive of the self. <laughs> yeah. Which is either killing him, Ruatho, or both. Yeah. Oh, like it's a... Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I think one of the great ways... So P- Picard kind of has a bit of a... A bit of a track record for setting things to explode and kill the villain. Uh, Sauron <laughs> in Generations as well. Yep. And I think, I think that one plays off a little bit better. Um, yeah there's more stakes i think yeah and with as well with generations you have the 
cutting back and forth with Picard and Kirk, which allows the action scene to breathe a bit more. Yes. Yes. There's F. Murray Abraham is an incredible actor. Patrick Stewart is an incredible actor. And they got absolutely sod all time together. Yes. And they just needed it. And I think it would have undone a huge amount of the criticisms for the film if they had just figured out a way to do it, which wasn't blowing up the collector. Like, give them their fight scene and everything like that. But maybe these are two not in the best of health men uh, at the end of the day. Maybe they have them just be like, hang on a minute, why are we doing this? Let's calm down. Let's go back to basics and figure something out. I think I think so. I think so. I think Ruafo could have been so much more... Leave him as a megalomaniac. Like I'm not saying they, could, they had to change that necessarily, but a bit like... Actually, a bit like... Here's a left-field reference. Um, here's a bit of a left-field reference. Uh, Jad Nicholson in The Shining is clearly batshit from the beginning. Whereas uh, Jack Torrance yes. in the novel, there is a, a development. I think Ruafo is clearly batshit from the beginning of this film where there should have mm-hmm. been a development. Yes. And there's also not really any consequences for him literally murdering a Starfleet admiral in the most horrific way possible. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it may... It would have been good if they perhaps tied in that maybe part of the reason that Picard didn't care as much was because he was close to Doherty or something like that, or given it a bit more motivation. Because as it was, Picard was just going on a full-on, I'm going to kill this guy mission because they had a bit of a spat over what was going to happen to other people. There were no personal stakes involved. So big question for you now. Mm -hmm. Patrick Stewart, when interviewed about this film, said that he would have moved the Baku. Where do you come down on that? 600 people versus the entire Federation. I mean, Star Trek, much like many other science fiction franchises, really, really struggles with the concept of planets. This is a planet. They can just say, hey, you're, you're really, really ill and you'd benefit from this radiation? Cool. Have surely for six month, months on the planet. We've set up some Starfleet villages nice and far away from the Baku. It's a strict armistice zone, no weapons allowed, uh, but you'll be provided with everything you need, much like, uh, in fact, Lower Decks, where they have that like resort place for all of the horrifically injured Starfleet people. Yeah. Like, why don't they just do that with the planet? It's an entire planet, and they acknowledge the fact that it doesn't belong to the Baku because they migrated there. And the Baku are incredibly reasonable people. And Shoreleaf is clearly an option, as established at the end of the film. So why don't they just set up a few hospitals on the other side of the planet and just continue to help people that way? Like, it, sure, it will be a slower process. They, said, they mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons Rafa was so focused on the Collector was because he couldn't return to the planet. He would die before the 
metaphasic radiation healed him. Mm. But at the end of the day, you have to draw the line somewhere, somewhere. And I think that compromising and just saying, we will leave the Baku well alone. They can do what they want. They can live in peace. We'll set up what we want on the other side of the planet. And we will just say, no weapons or anything allowed. Come along, get healed, youthen yourself up a bit. Then you can go back to duty. I, that's always been my issue with, as you say, it's a planet. This is one yeah. village on one continent in a planet. Um, and it's in, it's in Federation space. So you could very clearly have, you know, not necessarily a military presence, but enough of a presence to be like, Oi, I see you walking toward the Baku. I see you get back to your village. You know, I'll just have a like transporter thing in uh, like a starbase in orbit that if it detects anyone wandering within 50 miles of the Baku, it just beams them back. <laughs> it's just like, like a slingshot. What the hell? Um, <laughs> now that pretty, that's, that's kind of bringing us up to, to time on this one in terms of the, in terms of the film itself, if you had to do, give a kind of an elevator pitch, you know, you're like someone who's only ever heard, oh, I don't think Insurrection's very good. How would you sell them on it? It's a feature-length TNG episode with a high budget. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, if you are a Star Trek fan who loves the next generation, that is an amazing pitch. If you're a general Star Trek fan, that's an amazing pitch. The only time that isn't an amazing pitch is when you're speaking to a casual viewer in which, which I'd say, you know, this is a um, fun action movie. The pacing can be a little off at times, but there's a lot of fun involved. And it's also got some kind of upcoming topical arguments regarding the relocation of people. That is, yep, I'm on, but I'm sold. I'll watch it. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, so that, that is everything for today, James. You are a gentleman and a scholar, and you are bloody good at this. Where can people find you <laughs> online, which they totally should? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm at James Amy UK on Twitter and at James Amy on Instagram, where I post pet photos most of the time. So if you like dogs and cats, that's the place to go. If you like uh, general musings, usually about Star Trek. UK politics or some sort of strange combination of the two every now and then Twitter's the place to be stunning that is grand I will share both those handles in the description for this episode and it, it we, we will attempt to not leave it as long next time before we mm. get you back on because my god where did that time go we've got more odd numbered films to review hell yeah we do <laughs> All right, you're a gentleman. And everyone, thank you very much for joining us this week. That's the end of our episode. Whether you agree with what we said, think we're fantastic, think we're awful, or frankly, think we're on crack, let us know. You can get in touch with us by following me on Twitter, at Sean Ferrick. I am also on Instagram, also at Sean Ferrick. If you enjoyed what you heard and you'd like to get a, be a part of the club, come follow us on Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash Sean Ferrick for early release and suggestions for episodes and just general private stuff really James thank you once again for being your absolute amazing self thank you and thank you for the audience as well tuning into this episode it's always good to have a thanks so this is my thanks to all of you thanks everyone
You hear that? He loves you guys. He loves you. And I love you too. We'll be back next week for another episode of You're On Crack. I've been Sean, and you've been awesome.